I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow, and wherever you are in the world, it's great to have you with us. And if you like this little podcast and you're listening on, I don't know, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or something like that, and you think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to tell everyone how much I love Book Off? Well, why not write us a little review and click Five stars. Yeah, five stars. I think that's probably what you want to do. I'm going to do that. And Greg is going to do that. <laughs> He's going to do that right after this episode. Well, let's see how it goes, Greg. Let's see how oh, this no, goes. You <laughs> sold it to me straight away. <laughs> you, might, you, you might be going down to three or two stars, oh. depending on how the next 30 minutes unfold. And that, off mic, is the voice of my first guest, a theatre director, playwright, actor and author who founded the Criterion New Writing Programme at the Criterion Theatre in London, believe it or not. He's written, produced and staged 25 plays and musicals, taught creative writing and created the innovative website MossLabyrinth.com, the world's first online accessible 3D world. Here to tell us about his debut novel, it's Greg Moss. Welcome to you. That sounds like my cue. It is your cue. Five stars. <laughs> Fantastic. Five stars it is. <laughs> Can I get the five stars for The Coming Darkness, which is my future thriller set in 2037. Yes. An agent of the French security services. Yes. Clearly has to try and save the world. Yes. What more do you need to know? Five. Done. Well, thank Already you. done. Just written it down there. <laughs> I'll do you do a you do a book off review and I'll do a Goodreads or Amazon or something That's in, in return. That's, That's how we're going. <laughs> Uh, it's lovely to have you with us. And my second guest was barred from watching films and television by his parents, so he developed an early interest in reading, thanks to a local library. God bless him. After studying philosophy at University College London, he became involved in centre-left politics, entering into journalism soon after. He has sold, ladies and gentlemen, just counting them, two, three, 180 million books worldwide, which include the international bestsellers Eye of the Needle and The Pillars of the Earth, as well as the Kingsbridge series and Century trilogy you know who it is it's ken follett welcome great to be here thanks for having me thank you so much for both being here in london town in our lovely little studio and i have to say i know you met uh, for coffee earlier that was that planned or was that just sort of because you were both in the it area? was an accident actually yeah. i stalked him all the way from trafalgar square he didn't notice until... 
<laughs> but I've actually, this is the first time I've met Greg, but I, I know his wife very well indeed, Kate Moss. Yes, indeed. So indeed. You, you... That sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? Yeah. No, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm going to roll with that. <laughs> Just go with it. Just go with it. Uh, well, it's great to have you both here. And over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about both your brilliant new novels. We're going to get a little bit of an insight into your writing, find out what you've been reading and enjoying recently. And, of course, we will do... The book off, where each of you tells us, uh, or pitches us a book that you love, that you think we should all read. We'll come to that shortly. Uh, Ken, you've never been short of ambition when it comes to writing books, and never, your latest novel is no exception here, uh, because in it you explore the imminent threat of World War Three. Lovely light topic just to get into. Um, perhaps you could set up the, the rather epic story that you've written here for those that don't know it yet. It's inspired by the, in, the events that led up to the First World War, uh, particularly in July 1914, because when I studied that... Um, for a book called Fall of Giants, mm. I realised that nobody wanted that war. No, the national leaders, the presidents and emperors and prime ministers of Europe actually tried very hard to avoid that war, and yet they all made decisions that step by little step took us closer to the world war. And having, f having figured that out, the next thought that occurred to me was... Could it happen again? Could there be a war that nobody really wanted? And uh, then, of course, came the thought that is always the beginning of one of my books. Could I write a story about that? And, of course, the answer was yes, I could. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. That's fantastic. <laughs> Good, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And in some ways, Ken, it's more than a thriller. And by that, I mean you've got the action, you've got the danger, you've got the suspense. But it seems to me that you really wanted in this book as the reader to know your characters, really get get into their stories as much as actually enjoy a page-turning plot. Was that conscious? Yeah, I absolutely conscious, and yeah. I think it's it's completely essential. You know, the plot is one thing where there are there's suspense and what's going to happen next, but you don't care enough about that unless you care about the people involved in it. So it's really basic. Whatever's happening, people in danger, there's suspense, people falling in love, none of that matters unless you create characters that people can believe in and sympathise with. Mm and and root for because i mean that's what ultimately that's what keeps us turning the pages for me it is anyway and i think for a lot of people you turn the pages because you suddenly care about what's going to happen to these characters and isn't that weird i mean <laughs> you know that this was written by follett sitting at his desk <laughs> and making it up and yet and, and of course i do it too i mean you know i'm I'm reading something by Lee Child and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? <laughs> yeah. I, I know Lee. I, he's, he's there with a cigarette in his mouth <laughs> in his flat in New York and he's, in, and he's thinking, what's Reacher going to do now? So, um, But, it, but it, that's the miracle of literature. But you, you have to believe, it's very basic, you have to believe that those characters could be like, that people could be like those characters and you have to believe that these events could really happen. But unlike... Lee Child, who is sat there thinking, what's Reacher going to do now? You, of course, know, because you are a planner, Ken, and yes. he is very much a, let's see what happens. Yes, we're <laughs> absolutely contrary methods of working. Yes, I take a long time, I write a plan, I call it an outline of the book, uh, and it take, that takes me between six months and a year. Because um, 
in order to get this page-turning effect, the other thing you have to have is there sort of has to be a reason on every page to turn over and see what's on the next page. And some people can do that just intuitively. Mm. Uh, I, I, I know Freddie Forsyth slightly, and I talked to him, talked to him about this, and um, he really... He doesn't write an outline. He thinks about it a lot. But when he sits down to write, he just goes straight through it and does it quite quickly. And that's what Lee does. And what do you do, Greg? Well, I do a combination of the two. I'm, I'm in between the two. But what I was going to say, Ken, is if you know what the future for your characters feels like, you can write towards that, can't you? If you know the mood that you're going to arrive at, the end of the chapter, the end of the next section then that directs how you write. I think that's, that, that's the middle ground that I'm in, I think. Yeah, so, so whatever's happening, the, the principal characters are hoping for something mm. or afraid of something or afraid of one thing and hoping for another. Mm. And <laughs> that's better still, isn't it? <laughs> yes, if there's competing still. objectives, yes. that's the best. Yes, and, and then so as you move towards that, you've, you've, you can focus on their hopes and fears... Or, if you want, and this is very good to do occasionally, you can completely misdirect the reader. Yeah. So the reader thinks it's going in one direction, and, and so the end of the chapter comes and they go, oh, my God, I wasn't expecting But what that. you do brilliantly is you make that completely natural. It, it's not a deception. It's natural that the reader should think that that's the path it's taking. Oh, yes. And then, of course, it's plausible when you switch it round. Yeah. yeah. And... That's six, you said sort of six to 12 months for the outline and then another sort of year or two to actually write the draft and then the finished edits. A year for the first draft and a year for the rewrite. Gosh. And how long did it take you, Greg, for this debut novel? Listen, I, it was lockdown. Oh, right. <laughs> I had, my, my profession in theatre was literally made illegal yeah. overnight. Yeah. And so I had nothing else to distract me. And there I was in my study, in my Ikea poeng chair with its footstool and the laptop on my lap, on the tray table, which, um, you know, the sort of thing that grannies have with beads underneath. Oh, I know exactly. Them. Yes, love them. Sort of thing for doing a crossword or eating your beans on yeah. top. So that's where I sat every morning from about sort of 6.30 to 10 or 10.30. And um, ridiculously, I know you'll, you'll appreciate this, produced far too many words. <laughs> and, of course, my <laughs> publisher and editor have been helping me to refine it and make it hopefully a page turner mm. rather than a, a sequence of dull despair <laughs> i used to know i used to know the late ed mcbain who wrote a series of police procedurals about the 87th precinct in a town very like new york mm -hmm. and um i said to him when i met him i had read all his books and there are 30 or 40 i said to him you often start a book on the first of the month you, you, offer the, you know, the story begins on the first of the month and ends on the last day of the month. I said to him, and I often wonder whether you actually wrote it, you know, starting on the first and finishing on the last day of the month. And he looked at me and he said, sometimes faster. Oh, <laughs> oh. damn you. Yes. I know. Whereas... Um, Kate Moss, my wife, she is often frustrated at the process of writing novel, say, seven, because her mind is already brewing novel eight. You get that? <laughs> you, you want to be finished with this one because the next one is desperate for your attention. No, I don't. I mean, but it is tempting. I know because sometimes an idea occurs to you and you think that's good. 
and you start to think, and what I could do, and then you think, no. No. Stop, wait, <laughs> follow it, yeah. leave it. You've got to finish this one first. But I understand the temptation. But, and your plots are so intricate and complex that it, they need all your attention. Absolutely. It's not like you can... No. Drift off. You can't, no, you can't, you can't make it up as you go along. <laughs> no. <laughs> and what, uh, I mean, maybe it was the lockdown then, Greg, but I was going to ask what sort of drew you to a dystopian novel? <laughs> because this is what it is. This is set in a alternate but quite near future. Um, what was it that drew you to, to write this? I can share a secret with you. When I started writing, you know how you have a work in progress title and you're yes. not sure if that's what it's going to be? Yeah. Yeah. I put 2048 because it was a sort of in homage to Orwell. Yep. You know, 1948, 1984, oh, 2040. Yep. And then I decided that was too far ahead because I wanted the future, 2037, as I decided, to be like today, but more so, oh. not actually a different world. And so I, I chose to just go a, a generation, not even a generation ahead. So that was that sort of train of thought. And then when I say today, but more so, what I mean by that is that the it, it's not all black because of course it is now impossible isn't it to take seriously climate change deniers mm -hmm. I mean, yes. it's, it's absurd it is mm -hmm. yes. and and they are constantly shifting their ground because they know that they're absurd yeah. now and of yeah. course it, by 2037 there must be concerted action from that con unchallenged consensus at least unchallenged by anybody that the most self-deluding mm -hmm. So that, that was really how I, how I placed it in that future. And, of course, because it's a thriller, it's a happy ending, isn't it? And wouldn't you say you do this too? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't do it anywhere near the skill that you do, but this is what I, I, I would say about it. It's much easier to write a tragedy where everything tends towards despair, and sure enough, that's where it ends up. But to write a happy ending where out of all kinds of misunderstanding uh. and problems and awful circumstances and, and concealments and lies, you still get a happy ending, albeit you know, mitigated by, by reality. That's harder, isn't it? Much harder, yeah, yeah. And you, you have to do something clever often, but it must never be something that makes the reader think how clever you were to, the, to make it turn out like this, they've got to. The reader must see it as a perfectly natural thing to happen, but still be surprised and pleased by it. And you and you feel impatient as you write towards it, don't you? And it must be I don't know, maybe eighty five percent of the way through that that key thing happens that's probably foreshadowed somewhere near the beginning. Oh yes, yes. which unlocks that yes. positive ending. Yes, yes, that's right. But but the but. Um, the 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 reader must never think about the author, in my opinion. No. Must never think, oh, he's clever to do that. It must always he, the reader must be thinking about the characters, not yeah. about me. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you do too. You feel deeply for your characters, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you have to because, and the other thing is, other people in the story must feel deeply mm. for them, mm. and that's, that's yeah, why that's there's really always good. a that's why there's always a love story in my books yeah. because there's somebody who's in danger. Okay, you I. I want the reader to think, my goodness, I hope it all turns out OK for that person. Mm -hmm. But you also want somebody else in the story who's in love with that woman or that man mm -hmm. and is thinking, oh, my God, I couldn't bear it if it goes wrong for her or for him. And that's that's a much stronger way to um, create empathy for the characters, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, talking of great characters, I love Alexander in your book, Greg. Thank you. Did... He come first or did the story come first? And can you just set up 
this story for our listeners. So uh, imagining this future in which everything is like today, but more so, and therefore more threatening, I, I began to think about the hyper-connected world, mm-hmm. you know, the corporations that span continents and collect our data and abuse it. And it, it struck me that governments are in a sort of arms race to do the same thing. And then I thought that if you were an agent working for the security services of the French government, you would perhaps feel that that wasn't an entirely unalloyed good, that you were part of that machine of surveillance Mm. and manipulation of media and populations. And that's Alexandre Lamarck. That's where he starts. He's sent on a mission to a genetics laboratory in Norway with the goal of stealing their data and realises in doing so, for the, for the best of reasons, at least so he's been told, and he realises in doing so that he can't be the good guy. Mm. Can he? If, if they're the good guys. Mm. They're the scientists who are doing their best to create a, um, to create novel medicines for this, trans, this age of transgenic, transgenic viruses to solve awful problems for the world's poorer populations. And he's swanning in and with his brilliant future technology he's stealing it hmm. do you think that authors are contributing to the advancement of technology and you know thinking of the future of climate change the fight of climate change do you think that writers are having an effect on that well when i was a very young man your age for example very young. I read um, a lot of science fiction. I would read Isaac yeah. Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. I'm Me too. Re- yeah. Me too. Yeah. And those that speculative science fiction was incredibly prescient, wasn't it? Yeah, uh-huh. it was great. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I think we can see the same thing today in um, a well-made show like uh, Doctor Who. You know, there's lo- there's lots of predictions about the future when the doctor travels to the future aren't there that that see that are sort of satisfying and plausible like ken was saying just now in our plot mechanisms yeah that that and that's 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 fundamental to make it satisfyingly plausible yeah well sci- sci-fi writers of the past and the some of the ones you just mentioned there have been credited with inventing actually inventing things or certainly yeah. putting down on the page things that then yeah. turned Sat- into yeah. being the satellite network arthur c clark uh predicted that i think in the 50s and do you remember the mobile phones in in the first series of star trek no you're too young <laughs> you might remember greg <laughs> they had they had mobile they all had mobile phones and they were the type that flip open and you speak into the they lid. were flip phones, oh, flip wow. phones. that's right wow. but isn't it isn't it a question of imagination so in kate's new non-fiction book warrior queens and quiet revolutionaries she talks about more than a thousand, a thousand women who've changed history, but perhaps you or I haven't ever heard of. Yeah. So one day, um, a woman thought to herself, this, after a dinner party, is a lot of washing up, and started imagining a machine that could do that for her and invented, surprise, surprise, the dishwasher. <laughs> and it took her, obviously, a long time to develop it, make it work and patent it and popularise it and commercialise it. And none of, and, and we don't know her name, or you probably do, Greg. I can't remember. I can't remember. It's, it's popped out of my head. But, that's but it's the, in the book. Exactly. That's the sort of brilliant story, um, which is, as you're saying, Joe, it's a product of imagination, isn't it? Yeah. And then you make it real. Yeah. Or, or in our case, we make it real in our fictional world. In our fictional world, exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, you've mentioned Kate, your wife, who I know very well, like Ken, um, and I just wondered what it's like to be married to, I don't know, 
best-selling novelist when you write your book and think, shall I uh, share it with you, darling? Or did she get a first read? Yeah, always. And did she uh, give constructive feedback? Yeah, absolutely. But, of course, all those plays you were talking about so kindly earlier, she was first reader on all of those as well. Right. And um, there's there's three things I'd say. I'm sorry, I don't want to go on about this, but there's three things I'd say. Please go on, I'm enjoying it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do go on. Three things that I'd say that Kate brings which are um, unique to her. So there's, there is, uh, first, this um, unique, s- um, subjective, creative sensibility out of which she grows her, her plots and her mm-hmm. characters. And then there is this uh, almost austere editorial competence that she applies to it. You know, that's an objective thing. And then in addition, and here I'm incredibly lucky... She has this long professional experience because she was a publishing director and editor mm. and publishing director of the industry. And, of course, I've absorbed that like a happy sponge. <laughs> Perfect, then. <laughs> yes. Do you have a first reader, Ken? Well, I, I show my first drafts to lots to a lot of people. Mm. Barbara's one of them. My editors in London and New York um, I usually hire... Um, specialists, often university professors, in the um, subject that okay. I'm writing about, oh. who will, and, and I pay them, and I pay them quite well because I want them to take it very seriously, uh, and read the first draft and look for errors and suggest corrections and suggest alternative. If I've done something that couldn't possibly happen, as it were, in Never, for example, a lot of the action takes place in Beijing. Mm. If I've, mm. and so I had uh, people who've been there and who study the Chinese government and the Chinese secret service. And one of them might say that could, that couldn't possibly happen in Beijing. That's the sort of thing that happens in London and New York, but not in that sort of thing. Mm. And so, that although I do all the initial research myself, I have people who can correct. Yeah. Uh, but really, the most important is the people who say. And some of these are friends of mine, uh, who just happen to be good readers. Uh, some of them will um, will will say. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example in the in what I'm writing on at the moment, writing about at the moment. We'll, we'll say uh, this scene just didn't convince me. I just didn't think that would happen. I didn't think that man would make that decision. And I'll look at it again. And um, nine times out of ten, I change it. Mm. Occasionally, I will think I will think no, it's got to be like that. But mostly. I'll think, okay, this person didn't believe it. That's fatal. Mm. I've really got to do something about that. And so the pra- that process of reviewing is very important to me. And that's it's so interesting. You mentioned the the experts that you bring in because I was thinking specifically about Never and how incredibly detailed it, it, it is in terms of the authenticity of everything. I, I felt like you'd gone above and beyond, and obviously you have in terms of getting the details of all these nuclear weapons and sites and places in the world absolutely spot on yes uh, and and it's a lot of work although <laughs> like most most authors i quite enjoy the research because it's so much easier than writing <laughs> um, so and you can and, still call it work and you, and still you can work. still call it work you know uh, <laughs> but yes um things like <clears throat> um uh um let's take um the White House, because a lot mm-hmm. of the action takes place in the White House in Never. And um, one of my advisors said to me, for example, that meeting would never be held in that room. Oh, that's so good. 
And, you know, so pe people who have that kind of intimate Brilliant. knowledge of something... I've been to the White House myself and been around it. Oh, and I've you? been to meetings there. Yeah, yeah. In, in the old... You can't go there now, but it was much easier, you know, um, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and... Uh, uh, um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I've got I had people who could say that kind of thing. What kind of meeting would take place in what kind of location? And um, there is a <clears throat> what they call a situation room. What a, what a stupid name. It's a crisis room, <laughs> really. Is, uh, but yeah. the, in the basement, the situation room and um, descriptions of that and how people operate in that. Um, and, um, you know, I was able to find if I if it's something I couldn't actually research myself, I was able to find people who knew who had been there and done that. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's great. And then, of course, because every good story, Joe, every good story is essentially uh, a bit of a stretch. OK, it's, <laughs> you know, if it's not a bit of a stretch, it may not be a very good story. So it's got to be a bit of a stretch. So a lot of what you're doing is making it convincing, making it real. And if you put in some some actual details, mm. it creates a, a, an, a, an aura of reality mm -hmm. and and you're slightly uh, extravagant story becomes more um, believable. Yeah, very good. And you alluded to a new idea there. Are you are you writing a another novel at the moment? Oh yes, I am. Well, I finished Never about um, eighteen months ago, and yeah. I never stop. I don't stop. Um, <laughs> but you know, I get. I, t I I tell myself, you know, you ought to have at least a couple of weeks when you're not actually writing. Why? <laughs> yeah, and and then after ten days, you know, ten days of doing nothing, I oh. Blow this for a game of soldiers, and I start work on the next book. <laughs> it's you know what Noel Coward said. They asked him why he didn't retire, and he said because work is so much more fun than fun. <laughs> and that, I think that's true. Yeah. And have you got the fiction bug now, Greg? No, completely. Yes, yes. completely. I have. Um, so I'm writing this, the follow-up to The Coming Darkness, which is called The Coming Storm. And that in, should be published for 12 months on, so okay. it would be November 23. And I yeah. have another series that I'm working on, which has not yet been announced. But um, So, yes, I, I, I agree with you, and I, I agree with Noel Coward. <laughs> That's a good person to Come be on. in agreement with. Ken Follett and Noel Coward, they're in the triangle with yeah. me. <laughs> That's a great triangle. <laughs> Also a bit dodgy. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying <clears throat> recently. The um, classic question that people throw at me where I just look at them blankly and can't remember the names of authors <laughs> or titles of books or anything from the last 10 years. Um, luckily, I did, I did prime you. I was nice enough to say, oh, I'm going to ask you this. Um, so, Ken, what have you been reading and enjoying recently, you know, if anything? The one that stayed with me, which I read um, a couple of weeks ago, is um, a novel called Half of a Yellow Sun. And it's um, it's not new. It's been out for about 10 years, yes. so I'm I'm late to the party as usual. Um, but uh, people talk about it so much and it's it's had so much attention and sold so well, I thought I'd have a look at it and it really grabbed me. Uh, it's it's um, set in Nigeria, time of the, of the Biafran War. So it's, a back, it's the background of politics and warfare, uh, cruelty and starvation. Uh, and it's about a 
group of people who are caught up in all of this. Uh, they're, they're on the Bi most of the characters are on the Biafran side. Uh, it's awfully well done. The the characters also have, as we were mentioning earlier, the characters have lives of their own outside the story. So it's not just about the war and the mm. politics of the situation. It's about their marriages and love affairs and their children. And um, somebody once said to me, all, all great stories are actually about a family. I don't know if that's true, but a lot of them are Hamlet. You know, that's a family drama, isn't it? And uh, um, this certainly is a family drama within a, a war. And um, it grabbed me and kept me going right until the end. Very, yeah. very good. I, I think there's a similarity with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's novel and some of your works where... S small people, they're not small of course to the reader or for you, but small people in the context of society mm -hmm. are victims of these huge forces that they can't control isn't that right? Yes, to some extent, although for me, it's important that at least some of the characters are not just observers of the crisis no. they must be involved in, they must be actors, so um, uh, uh, you know the, the people in Never for example they're not just living through an international um, diplomatic crisis. They're part of it. They're making moves. The things yeah. they do change the crisis situation. Mm. And um, uh, I think at least some of that is very important in any novel that takes uh, history or even modern-day um, international conflict as its background. I think you don't want to be just watching it. You want no. to be in it doing something. And it's very satisfying, isn't it, to, to write a character who seems weak but achieves some some power or, or authority within the story can be yeah you see them be, grow and yeah uh, that's a good that's a good trick <laughs> <laughs> yeah somebody who somebody who who doesn't seem very strong although he or she has got some hidden strength which will gradually be revealed that's very satisfying yeah very. Mm. perhaps because we'd all like to feel we have some hidden strength that would come out in a crisis oh my god yes <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Uh, what about you, Greg? What have you been reading and can, enjoying recently? Can I offer you a sequence? I've 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 read um, Anthony Horowitz's sequence of Hawthorne novels. Hawthorne is a very mysterious detective, no longer working for the Met, and Anthony Horowitz is within the novel yes. a, protag a protagonist and narrator. <laughs> Tony, exactly, beautifully <laughs> written, self-deprecating, very funny. But also the intrigues are incredibly satisfying too. Mm -hmm. See, I could never do that. What use would Ken Follett be in a novel? He just <laughs> no, be, no, Ken, he'd hidden, be sitting... hid, hidden depths, didn't you just say? Well, I don't I don't think there isn't there isn't anything very much hidden about me, unfortunately. Everybody knows everything about me. No, I would just be I would just be sitting there writing a book about it while it was all going on all around me. Well of course that is what Anthony Horowitz, the Hawthorne calls Tony, really wants to be doing. He doesn't want to get drawn into uh, these crimes. Oh, that's mm. good. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to read a <laughs> Ken Follett novel oh, well, we can follow it in actually I think that that would be something uh, satisfyingly meta really satisfyingly <laughs> meta yeah very full circle um, yes I love those Horowitz books and I remember when the first one came out and we did uh, an event together um, and hearing him talk about why he did it and what sort of made him want to do because he I think like all great writers he, he wanted to challenge himself a bit I think and it was it was the case that he thought well how can I, how can I take a new step in 
the sort of fiction that I've already been writing. I know, I'll plonk myself in it. I, it is new. I, I don't think I've read novels quite like those. I really don't. Not right. anywhere. And I've read, you know, I'm 61 years old. I've read a lot of books. Yeah. Here's a conundrum. Go on. Some of Martin Amos's books, there's a character called John Self. Mm. Yes. Good very point. like Martin Amos. Mm. I've noticed recently that there's somebody who's been reviewing books, I think, for The Observer, called John Self. I wonder if it's... Is it, is it Martin or is there really a person oh, called John Self? You're a detective. Oh, oh that's my role in the novel. There days. you go. <laughs> Chief Superintendent <laughs> Ken Collett. No, I don't think that works. No. That doesn't work. <laughs> and, I don't know, Ken. I don't know. <laughs> There's something there. <laughs> um, thank you both for those uh, recommendations. Uh, this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, and now it's time for another, because it's time for The Book Off, where each of you gets three minutes uninterrupted to tell us about a book that you love, that you think everyone should read. Me, the listeners, everyone. Um, it's very... It's, I, I never say, oh, tell us your favourite book, because I don't... I, I, I think that's an impossible question. It's like, tell us your favourite song or album or book. I couldn't do it. I just could, And it would change. If you ask me now, it, it, it would be a different answer to later. So it's just a book that you absolutely love, that you think everyone will be enriched because they've read it. Um, so before we get to hear your brilliant pitches, 
we have to do a little bit of admin. Um, and usually I have with me my props, my trusty horn, the bicycle horn and the school bell. I have forgotten those and I'm going to blame that on the 5.30am alarm. So instead we can either just sort of... That, use, that's very good. That's use tuneful. Bottle. What do you think, Greg? Yeah, OK. Well, this is what I'm going to use then as, our, as your signal if you are still talking at is the that a, Is that a, a red traffic light or is it only an amber warning? Oh, it is a red traffic light. Oh, dear. Yeah. You have to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. it's, I have to say I've, um, I've cut down many a great author in their prime on this podcast and felt very bad about it um and yet it is it is the game so that's yeah it, it's a it's a red light if you want craig no one's ever asked if you want i can give you an amber no i'm going to put my phone on the desk <laughs> with the stopwatch running and if you hear me Jeez. accelerate you'll know why <laughs> um okay so in lieu of my uh, usual trusty props we'll be using the water bottle um and well, you always say the person who's travelled the furthest gets to choose whether they go first or second. I think that's probably you, Greg, from Deepest Darkest Sussex. Well, actually, I am very keen. I, I know what Ken has chosen, and I'm really keen to hear it, actually. So, OK, you're going to you... go second. Would you like to launch in? Of course. It's such a good choice. All right, Ken, so I'm putting three minutes on the clock, and just before we set it off, tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Over to you. What is the best political novel of all time? George Orwell's Animal Farm comes to mind. Devastating critique of communism in the form of a story for children. But what about Les Miserables, Victor Hugo? Or The Prime Minister by Anthony Trollope? And my choice is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Published in 1852 and the biggest bestseller of the entire 19th century. First and foremost, it's a classic Victorian page-turner. Closely plotted, full of high drama and intense emotion. It grabs you and holds you. Set in Kentucky in the era of slavery, its subtitle is, subtitle is Life Among the Lowly, and it focuses on the slaves. The title character, a slave called Uncle Tom, is a kindly man and a devout Christian, and yet he suffers horribly. This focus was a radical departure for the time. Dickens was considered vulgar for writing about working-class people. The same accusation was aimed at Harriet Beecher Stowe, but that was the least of it. From the first chapter, the author makes it clear, though with prim Victorian discretion, that slaves are used for sex. A coarse character called Haley is visiting Arthur Shelby, the decent white man, and notices a beautiful young woman slave called Eliza. By Jupiter, he says, there's an article now. You might make your fortune on a, on that gal in Orleans any day. I've seen over a thousand paid down for a gal not a bit handsomer. A Victorian novelist can't say it outright, but all adult readers would have known that Haley is talking about prostitution. Shelby refuses to sell his slaves. He and his wife treat them well in their own eyes. It's clever of the author to start with the best and kindest of slave owners because that allows her to make the point that the very institution of slavery is evil, regardless of whether the owners are good or bad. Shelby doesn't want to sell slaves, but business setbacks and debts force him to, and the story goes into high gear when Eliza gets wind of Shelby's intention to sell her four-year-old son, and she decides to escape. Uncle Tom is sold at the same time, and the story follows their separate adventures. It's said that soon after the Civil War broke out, 
a war fought, fought over the issue of slavery, among other things, Abraham Lincoln met the author and was bemused to find her a small and terribly respectable lady. And he said, so this is the little lady who started this great war. Oh, 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 oh wow. Fantastic. Oh, and with 20 seconds to go. Well done, Ken. <laughs> brought it in perfectly. That is wonderful. Um, we'll come back and, and talk about that book in a few moments. You can have a little rest now. Thank you. All eyes on Greg, because it's up to, to you. It's your turn now, Greg, for uh, the three minutes. And just before I set you off, uh, what is the book that you're going to... I'm going to hold forward. that back for till the end. Let's see Ooh. if you can, from the clues that I offer, work out what it must be. Oh, you tease. All right, that sounds good. It's three minutes on the clock, then, to tell us about this mystery book. Over to you. Evolution has prepared the human race to love puzzles. Many thousands of generations training us to think to ourselves, to look around and think to ourselves, well, I know what's going on here. I know what's going to happen next. Now, there was a time... I'm sure you will know when people spoke about the queens of crime, Allingham, Sayers, Christie. I remember as a child, I, I must have been 12 or 13, finding an old, an odd sort of book on the shelf, a Reader's Digest abridged hardback containing three detective novels. Two of them I've completely forgotten. I couldn't tell you <laughs> what they were. But one of them left an absolutely in indelible impression and of course I've read the full text many times since. That's my book. It's set in a brilliantly rendered Second World War, well post-Second World War London, of rationing and shortages in a theatre. We meet the company of actors and we know that one of them must be murdered. It happens more or less on the middle page which I think is very audacious and brilliant and of course, the pattern at that point is still concealed. Roderick Allen of Scotland Yard arrives and questions all the dazzling dramatis personae about the events that we, the readers, have already witnessed. And he knows, and we don't. The final clue comes from the stage manager, Jacko, French-Canadian, another wonderful character. Allen asks him if he can read German, and Jacko looks at the floor and replies, Jawohl. No spoilers. It wasn't Jacko who did it. <laughs> as well as the murder mystery, this relates to something you just said earlier, Ken, uh, the compelling and baffling, but oh so clear and rewarding at the end, there's a love story which is so beautifully woven into the investigation of the crime that it seems completely natural. As well as the love story, there's a forensic dissection of theatre mores, as it happens, the author's professional milieu, there's a naive, effeminate juvenile bullied by a self-regarding playwright. Um, the gorgeous leading lady whose ephemeral love affairs are brief interludes of grace and charm. And on the other side, the comforting characters among the police, the continuing characters present in all of the authors, almost all of the authors, 32 detective novels, comforting as old friends. You could read all 32 in order spanning the whole of her writing life from 1934 to 1982, and how I would envy you. <laughs> Above all, I would say I would envy the reader of this one perfect, understated, but still deeply felt novel. It has a complex mechanism, like a fine watch, jewelled and precise. Seeking the hidden pattern of its movement, you just need to ask your librarian or bookshop owner for opening night 
by Naya Marsh. You got it. <laughs> I gave you an extra two seconds there. I think I did just run over that ten seconds. Oh, dear, oh, dear. But that's all right, because you had some to borrow from Ken, so it was fine. That's, thank you, Ken. <laughs> um, wow, another brilliant pitch. Both of those are loved. Let's, let's just delve into them a little bit. Um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, 1852, you said, Ken. And yeah. what I loved, which I didn't know, the best-selling novel of the 19th century. Yes. Unbelievable. Um, and Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote lots more, but but not as known. Oh, what a good question! I don't think I she... don't know, and I, no, I, I don't know if you I'm not, I'm not expect sure. you to know either. I'm not but... sure. She certainly certainly never wrote anything. I, that, I, that I didn't know there was a broader research challenge, Ken, on this show. Did you? <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, good. <laughs> no, it's a good question. It's a good question because here was something about which she cared absolutely passionately. Yes, and none of us. None of us has two of those things. I mean, in, in, we don't have two of those things in our lives, do we? Not normally, anyway. So um, You're reminding me of that brilliant Kipling poem about every person having just one virginity to lose, whether it's to become a sailor or to be, you know, ambition. One virginity to lose. And Isn't only one. Clever? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but clever, you know, you, you, clever is a word that came up in your pitch in terms of her writing here. And unexpected, Joe. Unexpected Isn't that and... the brilliant thing that you sold us? Such, she's such an unexpected person yes. to have conceived of yes. that world. Yes, she was very respectable, came from a very religious family. Mm. And, um, of course, Abraham Lincoln was expecting a firebrand because that was yeah. the effect of the book. The, the book was sensational. She was vilified. One of her, one of the people who hated the book... Um, you know, all these people said slavery's not that bad. These people are well off. They're looked after. They like it. You know, crazy. Anyway, but it, it was interesting because, of course, all of those slave owners were Christians mm. and they went to church. Yeah. They were they weren't they by and large, they weren't villainous people. They were respectable, wealthy, well-dressed pillars of society. And she said to them, you're not Christians. You mm. can't be Christians if you're willing to sell a young girl knowing that she's going to be used as a prostitute. You can't call yourself a Christian. And that drove them up the wall. Mm. That really put them on the spot. And that confronted them with their hypocrisy. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That's why I think it's the best political novel of all time, mm. because it confronts people with the reality of what they're doing in a way, and way that they absolutely can't escape. Well, and that brilliant moment that you were describing, meeting Abraham Lincoln, it's just such an extraordinary sort it's of... Great, isn't it? Yes, a, yeah. a flash from history. Yeah, yeah. Not, not many authors have written a book that started a war. No, <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, what, a, what an incredible woman. Um, and what a brilliant pitch. So thank you for, for that, Ken. Um, and another one, Greg, opening night. Um, we love puzzles. Yes, we do. We want to know what's going on or like to think we know what's going on and I loved that this particular one had such um, an effect on you as a younger person when you read that sort of collection of stories and this is the one that mm. not only stood out but the only one that you remember of it and 32 novels is that yes, right? she, it's, it's, it's a monumental career isn't wow. it? 1934 to 1982 and I, I was saying to Ken earlier that I actually knew uh, late in her life in in the early eighties, I knew her editor Paul Sidey, who um, helped her publish her final novels. Wow. And 
Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. When you start thinking about life like that across generations and you count back, it is amazing, isn't it, to think that so-and-so, who seems from the dim and distant past, but they're only perhaps three or four generations behind us. Yeah. And if... and and um, Who was it who said to me the other day that if if the, the Queen's father had lived, he would... The same length of life as Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. he would have lived... Well, well into my lifetime. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The thing, about, the thing about Naomi Marsh, um, one of the things... Well, first of all, her detective is very unusual because he's posh. He is posh. He's a cop. He's proper posh. Yeah, but he's <laughs> posh. And that's an idea that was then pinched by um, P.D. James. Mm. She also has a, de- a detective who's a copper but is posh. Um, I, it's interesting that you've chosen one of the theatrical mysteries because I think they're the best. Agreed. She's she she had obviously had a great love of the theatre, and that affection comes out in those uh, mystery stories, murder mysteries set in and around the theatre. Yeah, and obviously for you as a theatre person, that's just an extra tick, isn't it? Like that's just another it lovely is. bit. Yeah, it it absolutely is. But if you think back to the very first things that Ken was saying about the strength of identification of the reader with the characters, the understanding of their objectives, their loves, their mm. fears, mm. that's on every page as well. And so Niall Marsh sets up the story with a young New Zealander, as she once was, adrift in London. We're not sure why at first. She has no resources who finds herself by chance, as it seems, at the door of this theatre and takes a job as a dresser when she is, of course, an aspiring actress. Mm -hmm. And that draws her into the world in which a murder will eventually take place. And and it's, it's something that not many authors are allowed to do these days to leave the murder till the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I yeah. always think that in a murder mystery, that the reader knows there's the promise of murder. And I don't think that a reader would toss a book aside just because it hasn't happened in chapter one or chapter three. I've just read a book that's very like that. Actually. Have you? It's called uh, May Grey Hesitates. Oh, yeah, of course. And uh, I've read um, Simonon. Part of the reason I read Simonon is he's easy to read in French. and It, it improves my French. It's super clear, yeah. Yeah, brilliantly clear writer, very easy to understand. But the, in, the, in Maigret Hesitates, Maigret Hésite, he, um, he gets an anonymous letter saying there's going to be a terrible crime. And it's, there, he, there's, there's no signature, there's no address, nothing. He doesn't know who it comes from. And so he spends most of the book trying to find out where this comes from and who sent it and what is the crime that's about to happen. And it's not actually... I think it's later than halfway through the book right. that somebody actually is murdered. But it's promised from the start. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And it's completely gripping. It absolutely works. But I'd say as well that Maigret's technique of detection is essentially to stand near to the suspicious people and see what they do. Isn't that interesting? And he asks them questions, but they tell him about their life, their job, uh, their husband and wife, their children, and he's just sitting there filling his pipe and listening and letting them ramble on. And eventually he's absorbed so much that he thinks like they do, and he knows what it is they must have done and how and when and where and to whom. It's a very character-driven mystery story. Of course, that's different from Roderick Allen, who is posh, as Ken says, but he's also very, very brilliant 
And in a few glances and with a few perceptive questions, he's already close to the heart of the mystery that Mm. we're still struggling over. Mm. And then that other thing that I was trying to sell you as an idea, that we see the whole action that leads to the murder, and we don't know who did it. And then we see him investigate in the second half of the novel the action that led to the murder, and we still don't know, and he does. (laughs) It's, It's frustrating but so rewarding as well when the when the outcome, when the explanation yes. is plausible and convincing. <laughs> and does um, having the murder in the middle page not come back to slightly what we've been discussing, which is you care about the characters, so you're reading on, because those characters are actually the story. And yes, the promise of murder is coming, but actually the reason we're turning the page to the middle is because, and as you says, Greg, in your pitch, there's a love story woven in to this book as well as it being you know, a detective mystery, and that's the key, I think, probably. Definitely, yeah. You have to, yeah. You have to care about it. You have yeah. to care about it. I mean, I do like the feeling. Um, I know all these people. Mm. Yes. Yeah. But what I don't know is something I don't know because one of them is a murderer. Yeah. And I didn't. And that I didn't. You know, that's <laughs> great. Something I often talk about <laughs> with the playwrights that I work with is, as long as the audience stay in their seats, they will find out what happens next. That element of suspense. If you stay with it, you'll find out. But the thing that's much deeper and much more compelling is why are they doing these things that they're doing? Finding the answer to that question is the really sustaining element mm. of suspense. The why question, mm. not the what. And you, I have to say, you've, you've brought in a copy of Opening Night here, which I just think is absolutely stunning. And I'm going to take a photo of this, if I may, Greg. And of course. We will post that up because that needs to be seen. Um, just those, I mean, the design of it, you, you'll see if you if you look on our social media channels, but that it's just so perfect, isn't it? It's just so beautifully done. <laughs> it's a, it's, it, it looks actually, to be fair, it looks a little bit like a melodrama. Yeah. And, it, and it's actually more subtle and nuanced than that. Yeah. But that's okay, isn't it? Because I just love the colours and you, the text it, and the, I've been, it's just... It draws you in. Yeah. Um, I always set myself up every episode. I get two brilliant authors in. They give me two brilliant pitches. I want to read both the books that they've talked about, but I've got to take one home. I've got to pick a winner. And uh, winner's the wrong the wrong phrase, really. Oh, but... I think it's got to be Ken's one, because there's that historical significance that that has that has such importance. So you're you're actually you've you've put your vote for Ken. Yeah, I would definitely. Okay. I would definitely go Beecher Stowe. Yeah, I think. Well, so. I think, and you know, I believe in fair play and even Stevens. Yeah, yeah, so and I, gonna... I, I vote for mine as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm outnumbered then. So I think. Yeah, I think we've got to take Uncle Tom's cabin. I think. Right? So, I think yeah. we have to. Yeah, yeah. but I have, uh, honestly. Um, 32 novels by Naya Marsh. I've got to go and investigate more because I did not know that she'd written quite so many. And Uncle Tom's Cabin, just such an important book. And I I did not know it was the best-selling novel of the 19th century. So I've learnt lots today, as I always do. Uh, Thank you both for being here and coming in and talking about your books and these books and other people's books. Never by Ken Follett is out now. It's published by Macmillan. And The Coming Darkness by Greg Moss, also out published by Moonflower. What an absolute pleasure, gents. We could have stayed here for another hour wanging on about books. Maybe we'll do it again down the pub some other time. Very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 